How did Abraham Lincoln screw up America? In oh so many ways. But this one is the most important. I'll talk about it on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Give me that email address when you're there. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audio book of the same title read by yours truly. You, of course, can support the show at brianmcclanahan.com. You can click on the support tab while you're there. If you're watching on YouTube, click on the little super thanks button under the video. You can support it that way. Go to anchor.fm. Support the show there. Click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. If you want to buy one of my books, you can support the show that way. Go to amazon.com, for example. Put in my name and you come up with all the books that I've published. There are a lot of them. I'm actually going to talk about one today, one of those books, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America and Ford Tried to Save Her. So there's a lot of great ways to support the show. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Share it around on social media. Social media. I could speak today. Leave that five-star review and a text review wherever you can. And of course, McClanahan Academy. I've got a new class out reading Thomas Jefferson. You can purchase classes there too, and that helps keep this podcast free of charge as well. But I started on the top of the program asking how many ways did Abraham Lincoln screw up America? And of course, when I wrote Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America and Four Who Tried to Save Her, I included Abraham Lincoln. And outside of the George Washington chapter, this was the most controversial chapter. And I knew it when I wrote it. I knew what it would be like when I wrote that chapter and all of the conservative media that would throw a fit over this because the book was published with Regnery History and Regnery History does a very good job of getting you on quote-unquote conservative media. They'll get you on television programs, radio programs in support of the book and you go on with various you know, talking heads and they don't read it. They just look at the cover or the press sheet that goes on the inside of the book. And they start asking questions. Well, when you look at the cover of that book, of course, it has Abraham Lincoln and George Washington on it. And that is the thing that irritated them the most. Now, some of the conservative hosts got it. I mean, they understood what I was talking about there. Oh, you've got Lincoln on here, particularly in the South. They all enjoyed seeing Lincoln on the cover and having Lincoln in the book. But when you... We're talking to people, say, in, I don't know, New Jersey or, um, or New York or California. The Lincoln chapter was a hard sell because Americans have been led to believe, and as I've talked about on this program many, many times, that Abraham Lincoln is the American demigod, that Abraham Lincoln is the man that saved the Union, the man that we should all revere, the man that is the glue that holds the United States together. But in reality... Lincoln is the reason that we're seeing all of the mess in Washington, D.C. today. So I'm going to talk about that because Marjorie Taylor Greene last week put out a tweet. And I record these in advance. So I would have done this last week, but I already had everything done last week. So Marjorie Taylor Greene last week put out a tweet where she said that it's time for a national divorce. Now, of course, this became big news on Twitter. Now, look, I realize Twitter is not America, that Twitter is a minority 
a very small minority of the American population, but it does drive the news cycle more than any other social media outlet, more than Facebook, more than Instagram, more than TikTok, more than any of that. And it drives it because it's a link sharing site. And in 250 characters or so, you can say things and then that those little sound bites become very popular and they get shared around a lot. And journalists are all over Twitter. It's why they threw a major fit when Elon Musk bought Twitter because they thought that their little echo chamber for leftist nonsense was going to get shut down. It hasn't. Really nothing's changed on Twitter. And I think everybody realizes that. But the fact is, Twitter does drive the news cycle. It drives the news cycle on places like Drudge Report, even on Fox News and some other television outlets. People talk about Twitter. And journalists are so lazy now. This is where they try to get all their information. So if you're on Twitter, you're going to see the news cycle happen real time. And it's very quick. It's because we live in a society without any attention span. Uh, this is very quick, and you can do 250 characters and People will see something, and then the next couple of days, it'll be gone. But Marjorie Taylor Greene saying this, that it might be time for a national divorce. She's sick of the nonsense in D.C. She's sick of the social justice warriors. She's sick of all of that. And maybe it's time for red states and blue states to part ways. Well, why can't that happen? Because of Abraham Lincoln. And you might say, well, well, Dr. McClanahan, having that happen would really mess up America. I mean, this is what you're saying you don't want to do. That, But actually, no, that's not true. And I'm going to give you, again, a, a kind of a brief history of secession here and how people dealt with this before Abraham Lincoln. That's the most important thing. When I say Abraham Lincoln screwed up America, there was another way forward in 1860 and 61 that Lincoln chose not to pursue. And it would have involved the loss, at least perhaps even temporarily, of seven states. But when we think about the United States, the fact is the United States was never intended to be so many states or this much territory. It was a union of states. And as a union of states, it could be 13 states, it could be 9 states, it could be 25 states, it could be 32 states, it could be 48 states. Why is it that we have to have 50 states in this much territory? It doesn't make any sense. Now, there are some principles involved in this that go back to the American War for Independence and to our understanding of the Anglo-American tradition and Western law. And that's also important. So let's talk about all those things leading up to Abraham Lincoln and how he really did screw up America. So if you go back to the American War for Independence and you look at even before the Declaration, there, of course, were Americans classifying the states as, at that time, which were colonies, as states, as countries, essentially. This is, and I'll just use the largest example of this. This is Thomas Jefferson in his summer review in 1774. He classifies the states as countries. But this was also part of Anglo-American law. Blackstone mentioned this, that these, these colonies were functioning as states. Uh, the legal scholar Vital mentioned that a state cannot surrender sovereignty. And of course, well, you're saying that these are colonies, so they're not states, but Blackstone was recognizing that. And Patrick Henry in 1765 had said the states were already really independent. Jefferson in 1774, though, makes the most conclusive argument for this. Now, in Jefferson's own words in 1821, 
He says that only one other Virginian was really on board with this position. Patrick Henry really didn't read it, uh, and, and it was tabled. Uh, but he said, well, I'm not so certain how many people believed this in 1774. Most people were still interested in reconciliation, in some type of halfway house that we could establish that would, that would go short of independence in 1774. And he's probably correct about that. But I don't think, well, obviously he would be correct about that when, when you're thinking of the fact that the United States did not declare, any state declared its independence in 1774. But when you look at his conception of what the United States was or would be and what the states are and were at that time, he's not very far off from how these things were actually functioning. And in that summary view, he talks about you have a parliament in Britain that is alien to the parliament in New York, and they're equal parliaments. He doesn't use Virginia. He uses New York, actually, as an example of this. They're equal parliaments. They're equal legislatures. You cannot have one legislature that's equal abolish another legislature that's also equal. And so that establishes a framework for the central government of the United States and the governing documents that we would have moving forward. If you'll notice in the U.S. Constitution, the United States Congress cannot abolish a state legislature. I mean, it can't do it. It can't say, you can't meet. Why? Because a state legislature, pick your state, wherever you're in listening to this podcast, your state legislature is equal with Congress. They are equal. One's not subordinate to the other. They are equal. And so the fact is, you have equal legislatures. You have equal states with each other. And we know this because in 1787, even before the Constitution was ratified, Jefferson, of course, or I should say the Congress, because Jefferson was not part of this, but the Congress passes the Northwest Ordinance. It said all of these states that were coming in would be on equal footing with the existing states. So they're equal. All the states are equal. And Jefferson had said that in 1784 when he came up with his idea for how the Western Territory should be organized they would be equal states. We didn't have subordinate states. We didn't have original states and then subordinate states. We had equal states. And, I'm, and I'm, this is an important point moving forward and how Lincoln screwed everything up. So we had equal states. Now, we know the first governing document for the United States was the Articles of Confederation, which was drafted in 1776 by John Dickinson, but not ratified fully until near the end of the war, when all the states finally agreed to it. And under this document, you had a federal republic. You had a federation of republics. Each of these states was sovereign, as the Articles of Confederation explicitly stated in the document. And the central authority had very little power whatsoever. Now, even Jefferson said this was a problem because essentially you had rampant nullification. And what he meant by that is that it didn't matter if the requisition from the central authority was valid they just didn't do it. So we get the Constitution, which, again, a lot of people in the United States thought jettisoning the Articles was a very good idea, though it was it was closer than you think in many states. And we get the Constitution, which allows for the central authority to act on individuals. It allows them to tax the people directly, and it does create more power for the central government. It was a document that increased the power of the central authority. But what it did not do was destroy the sovereignty of the states. Now, there's no explicit declaration in the Constitution 
that says the states retain their sovereignty and independence. That was gone. It's missing. But we do have the Tenth Amendment. And we know that when states were proposing bill, uh, a set of Bill of Rights, that was the first thing they wanted from many of the states. They wanted an ex- essentially a, an explicit declaration that the states would still retain their sovereignty. And they didn't say that, but they were saying that they retained all powers not, not delegated to the general government. Who's doing the delegating? Well, the states. And as I mentioned before with Vital, we know that sovereignty cannot be destroyed. Once you have it, you can, you, it's, it's, it's yours forever, right? And so if you look in the Constitution, in Article 1, all legislative powers herein granted. Well, who's doing the granting? Well, the people of the states. They're granting the powers, which means something bigger than the Constitution itself, than the federal government, which is created, is granting the powers. The, the, the federal government doesn't grant its own powers. These powers are being granted from an outside authority, and that would be the people of the states and the states themselves. They're granting the powers. We know that in Article 7, the Constitution is valid between the states, so ratifying the same. It's a compact between states. Now, there were those, of course, who wanted to centralize all power in Washington, D.C., who wanted to create a strong central government, who wanted D.C. to make all of the decisions. And every now and then you get people cherry-picking quotes from Madison where he makes the case that this, these states were going to be subordinate and all these things. But that's not the Constitution that we got or the one that they really argued for. Even Madison himself didn't argue for that position when it was going through ratification. We had a federal republic, and I've talked about this uh, last week, a federal republic, not a national singular consolidated republic, but a federal republic. It's irrefutable. The evidence is all over the place. It's irrefutable. This is what we have. So when you get the Washington administration and then most importantly, Adams administration, the Adams administration and the Federalists in Congress passed the Alien Sedition Acts in 1798. And this was a constitutional crisis. But even before that, in 1794, still with Federalists in control, you had two Federalists, Oliver Ellsworth and Rufus King, both, by the way, very important members of the ratification process in their respective states, approach John Taylor of Caroline, Virginia, and say, look, John, the jig is up. We don't want to be part of this union anymore. What do you think about secession? And Taylor was shocked. He actually wrote about it. He said, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we just got this thing five years ago. What? This is kind of a strange position, but within four years, he had generally come around to that position. And there's a very famous letter between John Taylor and Thomas Jefferson in 1798, before the Kentucky Resolutions, and Virginia Kentucky Resolutions, before those were drafted, where uh, they have, Jefferson and Taylor have a conversation about secession. Taylor seems to be in favor for it, what Jefferson calls scission. And he says, Jefferson says it wouldn't be a good idea, but what he never says in this letter, and if you get my class reading Thomas Jefferson, I covered this letter. I also covered the Kentucky Resolutions, the Summary Review. All this stuff is relevant in a lot of detail. But what he never says in that is that it's illegal. He never says it would produce civil war. He says, of course, there could be some type of conflict, but he doesn't say that the mere act of scission would produce war. So 1798 comes around, you have Jefferson and Madison secretly author the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions, which are a major assertion of the compact fact of the Constitution. It's not a theory, it's a fact. 
the the principles of federalism are not theoretical. They're not an idea. They're based on fact because people argued this over and over and over again. And if the Constitution uh, was not a federal republic, it didn't maintain that federal republic of the Articles, which it did because it was expressly stated it did, then we wouldn't have the Constitution. It wouldn't have been ratified. There's no way. So Jefferson outlines the compact fact of the Constitution, and he sweeps to victory. The Republicans and Jefferson, of course, sweep to victory in the 1800 election based on the fact that Americans believe this. So really for the next 60 years, we have the maintenance of this federal republic. 60 years. The nationalists would not relent. They kept trying to upset the apple cart. I mean, clearly, over and over again, they kept trying to upset the apple cart. And when I say nationalists, I'm mostly talking about New England sectionalists. Because real nationalism was best expressed by the Jeffersonians. Clearly, best expressed by the Jeffersonians because they were a truly national group of people. The Federalists almost disappeared. They came back in different ways, but virtually, I mean, as as a faction, a named faction, disappeared after the War of 1812. Now, they could come back as national Republicans, but even there, they were a little bit different. Henry Clay wasn't necessarily a Federalist. He was a Jeffersonian that liked Hamilton's economic plans and uh, a stronger central government. He was someone that believed in what happened during the War of 1812, like the embargo. These things were beneficial. But uh, these, the Federalists, the Nationalists, didn't get their way. They didn't win. They lost. And it's only because of New England sectionalism that we had any discussion of quote-unquote nationalism again by the time we get to the 1850s. And the Republicans were open about this. Charles Sumner wanted to make America New England. It was to try to put the stamp of New England on the rest of the United States because the South, they thought, was alien to American ideals. So you see, the New Englanders are dealing in ideology, whereas Southerners and the Jeffersonians are dealing in fact. We have this federal republic. The states do these things. The federal government does these things. This is how the Constitution was sold to the states. This is the government that we have. This is, this is the structure of the United States. There were, of course, calls for secession during the War of 1812 from New England. We know that New Englanders threatened to secede in 1800 when Jefferson became president. We know New Englanders threatened to secede in 1804 after the Louisiana Purchase. And you know how Jefferson dealt with all that, and this is important. Jefferson called these people malcontents. He called them, you know, uh, he said that New England rides the South very hard. He said these things. What he never said was that their positions, and particularly their, their positions on independence, were ever illegal. He said they were unwise. In fact, in his first inaugural address, this is what he says. Another thing I cover, another document I cover in reading Thomas Jefferson. He said they were unwise, but he never said it was illegal. He never said it was illegal. That is how the Jeffersonians dealt with this issue of secession. Unwise, but never illegal. Fast forward to 1861. 1860 and 61. And I've talked about this again on this show. We get the secession of South Carolina first in December of 1860, followed by six other states between January and February of 1861. In that time, there were various proposals to save the Union. 
There was the Crittenden Compromise, the most famous, but there were others. There was the Washington Peace Conference, which was a failure. And during all that time, Abraham Lincoln told the Republicans never to compromise. Don't compromise with the South. Don't compromise with these rebels down there, these people that are violating the Constitution. Don't compromise. We know that a compromise would have saved the Union. We know that only South Carolina was out of the Union in December of 1860, and that if something had happened in 18... There was actually proposals in December of 1860 to save the Union, that perhaps if they had been, they had been adopted, South Carolina comes back in the Union, and the Union is saved. There is a Union. But what happens in March of 1861, of course, is a departure from real Jeffersonian government. Because Lincoln comes into office, and he says he's going to enforce the law. Now, he makes a speech that's militant for his inaugural address, whereas Jefferson's inaugural address was not militant. Jefferson's inaugural address was essentially, these people are saying stupid things, let them remain undisturbed. Lincoln says, these people have done these things, I'm going to enforce the laws. Now, again, they didn't have to secede. Lincoln could have stopped that. What I find fascinating is all of the conservatives that have gone ballistic over this stuff and were saying ridiculous, stupid, idiotic things. Dinesh D'Souza admits, he says, well, Lincoln uh, did say that secession wasn't necessarily illegal, but only if we violated your rights. And since we haven't violated your rights, you can't secede. Now, Lincoln was making this stuff up as he went along. He didn't know. Lincoln was making it up because he wanted to save the Republican Party, not the Union. Lincoln didn't save any Union. In fact, he created the monstrosity that we have now, which was alien to the original Union. And again, simply by saying that he's going to enforce the laws and create this kind of militant America that's going to go out and shoot people for independence, which is the most American of all positions, self-determination. That is the declaration, self-determination. It's not that second paragraph of the declaration that's the most important. It's the last paragraph of the declaration, which says that we're going to have free and independent states. We know the Treaty of Paris of 1783 recognized each state independently as an independent country. That is the truth of the United States. And every state that came after that was on equal footing with the existing states. So if these states are states, and each of these states are states, and they're all in a union of states, we have a federal republic, not a national government. But Lincoln, screwing up America, was creating this national government. And the perception that secession will lead to war. That is how Lincoln screwed up America the most. Secession didn't have to mean war at all. Lincoln pursued that path from the beginning with his very militant inaugural address. South Carolina secedes in December of 1860. Six other states, January and February. And March, by March 4th, we didn't have a war. So from the time Lincoln's elected in November of 1860 to the time he takes office in March of 1861, nobody had gone to war. Now, James Buchanan did try to resupply Sumter, and the ship was shot at. We know there was an uneasy truce in places like Florida where you had Fort Pickens. We know that there was an uneasy truce in South Carolina at Fort Sumter, but no one was being shot at. In fact, the soldiers at Fort Sumter, the Union soldiers there, could walk around Charleston. Nobody shot at them. Nobody did anything about it. And uh, 
that probably would have worked itself out. And we know that South Carolina was there in Washington trying to buy the fort, trying to settle these things. Let's just settle this peacefully. We'll leave you alone. You leave us alone. No big deal. Lincoln said, don't do it. Don't do it. He's writing to Republicans behind the scenes. Don't do it. Don't compromise with these people. Don't have any kind of interaction with them. All of this is illegal. It can't happen. Don't do any of this stuff. If Lincoln really wanted to save the Union, he could have, but he also knows something else. If he does this, he's a one-term president because the Republicans would have been crushed in the 1862, quote-unquote, midterm elections, and Lincoln would have been gone in 1864. The Republican dream of this New England nationalism would have been finally extinguished, and all of the issues that had plagued the United States would have been done away with, with something like the Crittenden Compromise, which, of course, was about where you would have allowed slavery in the Western territories. That was the big issue. It wasn't about slavery in the States. I mean, we could talk about all that all day, and I've done many different podcasts on this, why slavery was important. But Lincoln made a conscious choice to buck what the founding generation said about secession. Even Zachary Taylor. Zachary Taylor says, well, California is going to be a problem. It can be independent. You've got abolitionists saying that secession is the way forward. North and South, secession was a recognized feature of America because of the American principle of self-determination. Now, we can make an argument, is it a wise thing to do? I've talked about that on this show. Is secession wise or is it unwise to do this? Would it be a wise thing to do or not? We can have that conversation. But the conversation should never be secession is treason. And there, I mean, you look at the the things that dopey people were saying on social media. One of my favorites was Marjorie Taylor Greene says this on President's Day. This is sedition. These people are so stupid. I don't know how they tie their shoes. It's not sedition to say, you know what? Maybe we've got some issues here and we can't really solve these things. Centralization of power and the clamoring for a control of the center is not working. It's creating more conflict than it solves. Maybe it would be better if we had some discussion about decentralization, some discussion about you being live and let live. You be you and I'm going to be me and we're just going to live and let live because that's all that she's saying about this. What we have essentially is uh, a, a group of people in America that will not let the other people go because they want to control them, possess them, and make them do bend to their will. That's what we want. That's what they want, right? I mean, this is what essentially the left wants. So you look at how this, how this conversation played out on social media over Marjorie Taylor Greene, and you've got the governor of Utah, for example, making a statement, well, what we don't need is a, we need marriage counseling. We need counseling and all this to try to make all this work. Now, again, we can calculate the value of union. Is a divorce important? Or could it be saved for very strategic reasons, economic reasons, defense reasons? Should we save the union? These are things that we can have a conversation about. But the conversation should never turn to, well, that's going to create civil war, and that's treason. That's sedition. You know why it does that? Because of Abraham Lincoln. This is why I say Abraham Lincoln screwed up America, because of the way that conversations turn in America once you mention the very American principle of self-determination. That's treason, that's sedition. I mean, do we live in the Soviet Union? Do we live in the consolidated empire of the Third Reich? Is this what we live in? 
Because in those massive police states, you couldn't say, do we live in communist China? Do we live in these areas? Because this is the kind of, of thing that a totalitarian government would say to people who simply are saying there are some things broken and we need to try to fix them. And if we can't fix them, maybe it's best that we part ways. Lincoln, presiding over Washington, D.C. in the American Parthenon, the Lincoln Memorial, has done more damage to real America than any other president for that reason alone. And look, we've got presidents that have done a lot of damage. But without Lincoln, there's no Woodrow Wilson. There's no Franklin Roosevelt. There's no Harry Truman or Lyndon Johnson or all of the elected kings that we've had really in the last 40 or 50 years. None of that doesn't, none of that exists, right? It's, it's all gone. Without Lincoln, we don't see the shift from a federal republic to a national republic, from a federal republic to an empire. He is the turning point. He's the pivot. And this is why Lincoln is so dangerous to the future of the United States. I think we should take down the Lincoln Memorial, not because of all the stuff I talked about yesterday and what Lincoln said about colonization and race, because that was the generally accepted positions in America. We can say they're wrong today, but Americans held those views. That's not the problem. The problem with Lincoln is his belief in a strong centralized government and dissent will not be tolerated when it comes to the principle of self-determination. Now, again, Lincoln himself believed in it during the Mexican War, but not when he became president. It's something I didn't even mention, but you know, Lincoln didn't make a speech during the Mexican War where people anywhere had a right of revolution and self-determination. But not if you're American. Not if you're in the United States and we have these religious documents, the Declaration and the Constitution, which is how he framed those. I have a great class on Lincoln, too, reading Abraham Lincoln at McClanahan Academy. When I get into all the things about Abraham Lincoln and how much of a troublemaker he really is for real American history. Lincoln is the pivot. Lincoln is the turning point. So if we're going to exercise our demons of centralization, we have to jettison the Lincoln myth. It's why I hammer these Straussians all the time. It is the most pernicious myth in American history. The proposition nation, righteous cause, Lincoln myth. It does more damage politically in the United States than anything else because you do not have in any way the possibility of a real conversation about decentralization and federalism. Now, you could say that's anti-union. I would say it's completely pro-union. We're talking about the union of states as the United States was formed. Now, again, the caveat to all this is that the left, and many on the right, would say, well, actually, what you're saying is true. We had the original Constitution, but then we had the 14th Amendment and everything changed for there. But that's a whole other discussion. If we want to, again, save the United States and save how we think about the United States, we have to get rid of the Lincoln myth. See you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.